0: Should we not then in wisdom begin our ministry with that which is most foundational and guaranteed to be blessed by God himself? Is not that what our church should do? Is that not what my marriage should do? Is that not what my life should do? And my family and the answer is yes, of course. Wisdom says, start with that upon which God guarantees to bless persecuted church then it has massive lessons and we learn today again from the persecuted church in acts chapter 12 the very first thing the church does when under significant trial and hardship the very first thing they do is pray
1: Hi friends, and welcome back to Live in the Light. I'm your host, Craig Turnbull, and joining me is our teacher, Pastor Robbie Simons. And then there's you, our listeners, who are maybe joining us in their car, or at home, or in the office, or the home office, whatever the case, we are seriously thankful that you have joined us today. Hey, we're walking through Acts together, and today's topic brings us to chapter 12, and a deep crisis that faces the church deep crisis that is met with supernatural prayer robbie what's ahead for us today well, one of the more important messages
0: that we can hear from God's word when it deals with prayer, man, prayer is everything. Acts chapter 12 is one of my favorite chapters in the book of Acts and in the New Testament just because it there's so much packed into this one story. Peter in prison, the people pray, the earnestness of it, they depend upon the Lord, the Lord hears, the miracle is seen, the people don't even believe when their prayers are... I mean, I'm starting to preach the whole sermon here. You're gonna hear this today, but man, it is encouraging. Hey, hey, listen... If you want to see the Lord work, man, we have to be men and women of prayer. I mean, prayer just works. It's as simple as that. It's what God uses to see a people dependent upon him. Massive lessons today from the early church. Join us. Join us here at Living the Light. Be men and women who pray. Honestly, uh, we are praying for you. We are praying for the Lord to do awesome things. And you know what, too? Part of our prayers, we love to hear from you. Uh, We want to hear how we can pray for you and join you as you are seeking to struggle through life as we are. In many ways, this life is hard. It's crazy. But the Lord is so good, and he gives joy and peace. And again, when his people look to him and pray to him and are fervent for him and things like earnest prayer, man, the world just changes. And that's exactly what Acts 12 is going to tell us today. To the point that Herod drops down dead, eaten by worms. Are you kidding me? Wow. Wow. I mean, don't mess with God, right? We pray to him, he's ruling, he's awesome so much to learn, anyways again so much coming down today, be encouraged be blessed, we care about you we'd love to hear from you and we pray God
1: is working in you may it be so. Well amen to all of that and to our listeners if you would love to reach out we would really love to hear from you uh, especially hearing how God has maybe been moving in your life and transforming you through the opening of God's Word before your eyes, we'd love to hear from you. Again, our phone lines here are one 22 light That's 1-844-225-4448. And you can also connect with us on our website at liveinthelight.ca. All right, fantastic. To our listeners, I don't know if you can do it, but if you are able go ahead and grab a pen and a Bible and join us in Acts chapter 12. And let's join up again with Pastor Robbie for today's message, Supernatural Prayer.
0: Anyway, so let's start a sermon today with this. Um, what happens What happens when persecution hits the church? What ha- A number of things happen, okay? Here's one thing that happens for sure. When persecution hits the church, the church is instantly refined. Like instantly, the church is refined. When persecution hits the church, here's another thing. Think of it this way. When persecution hits the church, instantly, many, look here for a second, many good, good things instantly become irrelevant. Like things that aren't bad necessarily at all. Like they're in fact, they're, they're good. But when persecution hits the church, certain good things will become irrelevant because all of a sudden they're not essential They're not essential to the survival and to the growth of the church in honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, when persecution hits the church, certain priorities plummet. Like certain conversations you're having today, if strong persecution hits, you're not having them anymore. They don't matter. In the scale of what's important, they just kind of fell off the ledge. And then other priorities will skyrocket because the vision and clarity of the church has never been more real of what we're actually needing to do at this moment within serious trial, and in this case, persecution. so for example, let's say say a strong dose, and it's growing in our day, it's growing in our day, but a strong dose of persecution hit the North American church. I believe, for example, 90% of the leadership books that have been written for the church in the last 30 years, 90% become, again, irrelevant in a moment, just like that. just, because they're just not relevant anymore. Again, like marketing strategies, gone. Leadership techniques, useless, right? Arguing over which song we like, old, new. That's all, it's all gone. You don't care about it. You're just happy to sing a song when the church is under heavy persecution. All these things that we hold so dear, all of a sudden, they just are not important because again, the vision is so clear. So as I've thought about this over many years now, The persecuted church teaches us very, very valuable lessons because the persecuted church ultimately will be focusing and placing their time upon and within that which is most important to God. And so then I say to myself, I say, well, Robbie, if that is true then, does that mean it's not true now for us? Should we not then in wisdom begin our ministry with that which is most foundational and guaranteed to be blessed by God himself? Is not that what our church should do? Is that not what my marriage should do? Is that not what my life should do and my family? the answer is yes, of course. Wisdom says, start with that upon which God guarantees to bless. The persecuted church then, it has massive lessons. And we learn today again from the persecuted church in Acts chapter 12, the very first thing the church does when under significant trial and hardship, the very first thing they do is Pray. Prayer. Prayer becomes the absolute go-to of the church, again, in the most important times and seasons, and that must be true for us as well. Listen, loved ones, where there's supernatural power, there will always be supernatural prayer. You will not have one without the other, biblically speaking. This is what we seek to learn more about today. We want to see supernatural power. Then we must be a church depending upon, relying upon supernatural prayer. All right, get ready. The Holy Spirit's coming after you today. I'm excited about that. He's coming after you because he loves you. And he's going to come kind of knock some hard shelled hearts and crack it up and make it soft. He's coming to others with conviction. He's pursuing people down, men, women, and children to call you to that, which is irrefutable based on scripture. Acts 12, a glorious chapter. Let's start with the first five verses. It says this. About that time, Herod, the king laid violent hands. Here comes the persecution. Laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John with the sword. That means he beheaded him. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Notice the response, verse five. Really our thesis for our text today. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So check out the persecution, but check out the prayer. Point number one is this, serious heartbreak and yet earnest prayer. Serious heartbreak and yet earnest prayer. Now in verse one, we are introduced to Herod the king. This is Herod Agrippa. He's an evil man as we'll find out. He's a proud man as we'll find out. And he's a doomed man. As we will also find out, who is Herod, Agrippa, Herod the king? He was the grandson of Herod the Great. There's multiple Herods in the Bible. You might remember Herod the great. Herod the Great was the one who murdered all the babies in Bethlehem surrounding the birth of Christ. Herod the King, in our text, was also the nephew of Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas was the one who beheaded John the Baptist. So not exactly a line of saints. Here you have Herod Agrippa in chapter 12. He will carry on the tradition of those who have gone before him along his family line. Now, verse one tells us that Herod got violent against the church. Why did he do this? The text tells us because it pleased the Jews. Herod here in chapter 12 was the politician of politicians and all the negative stereotypes of politicians. This was Herod the king. He loved popularity. He sought approval. The Jews did not like him. He did not have Jewish blood in him. So he was doing whatever he could to be liked by them, to gain notoriety, to gain the applause, to seek their reward, that he might gain his status. He was so self-serving. Again, he was a true politician uh, going for self-interest again in all the negative that we understand them to be. Verse two gives the reader a shock here, just kind of out of nowhere in verse two, bluntly and briefly explains, the apostle James was killed, was beheaded um, by Herod. Now this is significant, okay? Because this is the first politically motivated murder ever in terms of a Christian, a Christ follower being murdered by political motivations. Um, The murder or the martyr of Stephen was by religious motivation. The Jews, again, sought him to be killed. This here is Herod, politically motivated and incited. He is the first one to kill Christians, again, for kind of self-gain and to please people around him. Now, what's interesting here, Herod the Great in murdering, or Herod the King in this way and murdering James, would be the first of a line of dozens and hundreds and thousands of kings throughout history that would murder Christ followers by the thousands, millions, and and hundreds of millions throughout history. In the last hundred years, we believe, more Christians have died for the cause of Jesus Christ, again, by political leaders than ever before, again, throughout history. It's it's, It's the demonic, evil, satanic design to hurt and kill the church again, which started right here in chapter 12 with Herod the king and has continued on ever since. And we'll continue on until Jesus Christ again returns. As we see the Antichrist who will rise up and be soundly and utterly humiliated and defeated again by the Lord Jesus Christ. When he returns by the breath of the mouth of Jesus Christ, he will strike down again the man of lawlessness and all who gather with him to oppose Jesus Christ. So we see here though that the Bible says that James, the brother of John, was executed. So that's hugely significant. Like that's James, Peter, James, and John, James. That is again, James, sons of thunder, James, and John, James. That is James, inner three of Jesus, James. Like this is, this is a huge deal. There are only two apostolic deaths recorded um, in scripture, right? Like of the apostles. The other one was Paul, but the details of his death wasn't described. It was his death was imminent. This is the only apostolic, one of the apostles that death is recorded again like this in this kind of detail. So we see this happening in verse two. We place ourselves again within the church and imagine the grief. Imagine the grief, James. James has been executed by Herod. Now remember up until this point, the apostles seem to be untouchable. Yeah, they got arrested, but they got freed. Yeah, they were under tre- tre- tremendous threat, but they were released and they were able to keep on preaching. I mean, they, you can got to get to other big like Stephen, sure, but the apostles, the apostles seem to be untouchable. But all of a sudden, you have a massive dose of reality that hits the church. Now, let's stop here for a second. This is an important principle of application, loved ones. Notice this, okay? The church is precisely in God's will right now, and James is James is beheaded. They are precisely precisely under the will of God. Many awesome things are happening. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, this isn't out of God's control. This isn't out of God's sovereignty. All of a sudden, one of their top people and leaders is executed under the will of God. Let Let me just caution us very, very carefully. Sometimes we paint God's will out to be what is our will, not God's will. We are so focused sometimes of living here and now that we forget the moment James actually enters from this life to the next, he actually starts to live for eternity in the presence of Christ forever. He's not regretting that. Sometimes again, we understand, we place our own desires and our own wills upon God's. But we see right here, another tremendously clear example. They were precisely in the will of God and yet one of their own was brutally murdered and died. Let's be very careful that we don't place expectations upon our lives that Jesus Christ never promised for us in the first place. That's when we get really disappointed. And I'm reading this, I'm just like, a lot of them must've been like, what in the world is happening? Listen again, God's ways are not our own. Things happen all the time that we don't understand. We trust him to the very end. And one day we will see perfectly and we will see Jesus Christ face to face and all these things will make sense. But in the meantime, we are taught and we are called to trust in him even when we don't understand. That's a powerful process and path of Christian maturity that many in our day have devised a form of God's will that is nowhere near biblical and is more about human pleasure than it is about trusting in the sovereignty of God. It's interesting here, you this massive dose of reality that hits the church. Remember um, in Mark chapter 10, James and John, the sons of thunder, as they are called, they go up to Jesus And they say, Jesus, we wanna ask something of you. And Jesus says, what is it? And they said, we want to sit on your right hand and left hand in glory. And Jesus says, you do not know what you are asking. Can you bear the cup that I prepared for you? And they say in their naivete, they say, yes, we can. The cup that Jesus is referring to is in part fulfilled again right here with James as the cup of death and his suffering again and death for Jesus Christ as being a follower of Jesus Christ. James and John, they are seeking the glory of the Lord, but they don't really understand exactly what they're asking for. And Jesus explained, when James is found out right here and John later on again, he would be exiled. And eventually his life again, he would pass away from this world into the next as well as a tremendous disciple of Jesus Christ. You know, there's an incredible story that's shared from Eusebius. He was um, a tremendous church historian in the late 200s, early 300s. And he passes on a story from Clement of Alexandria about a soldier that walked with James towards his execution. The soldier was so impacted by the witness of James as James faced death. The soldier Um, gave his life in the witness of James to Jesus. The soldier gave his life to Jesus Christ and declared himself to be a follower of Jesus Christ to the point that when James was beheaded, this soldier was also beheaded for his testimony in the Lord Jesus Christ by the impact of his witness of walking beside James again to his death. Just amazing. I believe those things. I believe the power of the apostles, how closely they walked with the Lord and trusting in him. They would honor him to the very end and lives would absolutely be transformed around them. God, give us just a a smidge of that in our own lives to the power and the testimony of the Holy Spirit within us. Verse three then tells us that Herod saw that James's execution pleased the Jews. So then what does he do? He arrests Peter. He's like, I got James. Now I'll get the real big shot. I'll get Peter and I will be popular and I will have people applaud me and I will be liked and I will grow in status. This was Herod, man. This is this is who he was. Notice our text says in verse three, two, this happened during the feast of unleavened bread that immediately followed the Passover. Why is that significant? Well, Jewish law prohibited any trials or sentencing during this time. That is likely why Peter was delayed in his execution. However, it's also probably because Herod wanted as many, Passover was the busiest time by far of the whole year in Jerusalem. He wanted as many people as possible there to see the execution of Peter that in the end, everyone said, look at Herod, he's so amazing. He killed Peter, the leader of the Christians, those who are following Christ. So Peter was put in prison. Notice the detail, four squads of soldiers in verse four. Sounds like overkill, doesn't it? That's four times four, 16 soldiers, maximum security, four different watches of soldiers over four different shifts. After the Passover, Herod intended him, it says, to bring him out. See that, to bring him out to the people. Why, why, what does that mean? Herod wanted a public trial. Herod wanted a public show. Herod wanted a public execution. So he would be seen in the glorious light of all the people again, giving him applause and reward for this. So what a heartbreaking time this is for the church. You know, the big three, Peter, James, and John, one is beheaded, one is in maximum security prison. And here we have, here we had the third time in the book of Acts already, Peter has been imprisoned. Now, you know the church, right? The church is aware of what happened in Acts chapter five. And some of the disciples were in prison and the angel came and supernaturally opened the door of the prison and they walk out and they were set free. The apostles also prayed in Acts chapter four in the midst of being imprisoned again and the threats coming against them. As we heard in that awesome video leading up to the sermon today, I'm so thankful. that video blessed me so much. We heard too that they didn't pray again, that they would be able to hide and be saved. They prayed that they would have boldness as they were released to continue to preach the gospel. Remarkable. So what happens is all this happens this incredibly hard time verse 5 happens look at verse 5 so Peter was kept in prison but earnest prayer earnest prayer for him was made to God by their earnest prayer circle that underline that that's so important earnest the word earnest can mean um unremittingly or Fervently, as a good translation, fervently. Um, That word earnest is the same word, root word, at least used in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus, in his agony over his upcoming death and crucifixion, another use of this word is to stretch a muscle to its absolute limits. The church was fervently stretching themselves in prayer continuously fervently calling out to the Lord. Hey, church, church, prayer is the muscle of the church. You don't exercise the muscle that can't go strong. You got to exercise the muscle, the prayer. Again, prayer is the muscle of the church. I love the insight here too. Here you have the the, uh, collision of two powers. Uh, You have the world wielding wielding its physical sword, literally cutting off heads and imprisoning people by force. And that power of the world is met by the power of the Lord and the power of the church. And the power of the church is not physical sword. The power of the church is prayer. They combat this this colliding, this collision of forces, one with physical, one with spiritual. And which do you think is more powerful? Which do you think Again, we'll win. Charles Spurgeon, he said this about the power of prayer. He says, my own soul's conviction is that prayer is the grandest power in the entire universe. No more powerful than the sword, more powerful than governments, more powerful than anything humankind can come up with. That's Spurgeon's conviction may it be our conviction. Our conviction, that prayer. Now, 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 many of us, we will live this way as though this is not true. We will live as though it is one of multiple powers we can access. But at the end of the day, if your theology is right, there is no greater power in the entire universe, this is so true, than the power of prayer that is offered to God Almighty through his son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, just think of that video we saw to lead up to this message today. The overwhelming evidence of everything that happened in the book of Acts to the early church was based on prayer. It was based on prayer. When our theology lines up with our lives, then we start to live out the power of prayer. What I'm about to say right now, I'm not seeking to make you feel guilty, but I am loving it if you would feel conviction over this. Why is it that some of us have never done the doors of this church in the midst of a churchwide prayer meeting? Again, I'm not trying to make guilt stinks. Guilt is nothing. But what I'm suggesting to you, and there's different reasons for this, is that when your theology is accurate, because you can't argue with me right now based on what's being said, because if you're arguing with me, you're arguing with God. It's just in the Bible. Without prayer, we have no chance. So again, the church or the people, the family or the marriage, whatever it is, if they don't pray, there's something severely disconnected with what they say they probably believe and how they actually live. The church understood the theology and the church went for it big time. Serious, heartbreaking and earnest prayer. Again, listen, I I don't want, I don't, in Jesus name, I don't want guilt, man. There's no purpose. It lasts for a couple of minutes and then fades off. But the conviction, see what I do in my life all the time, I continually preach to myself, the theology that I know is true. And in this case, the theology is Robbie, if you don't pray, you're done. You have no power. God holds all the power. You must pray. Pray unceasingly, you must pray to the one who holds the power. There's no point in the church again. We must understand what does God bless? In this case, massive dependence upon him. That's what he blesses. He blesses the humble, those who are broken, those who depend on him. He opposes the proud. He opposes the arrogant. He opposes the self-righteous. He opposes those who are self-dependent, but he works in and dwells with those who are lowly and broken and contrite in spirit. One of the best ways we show that is through prayer. So serious heartbreak, yet earnest prayer. Number two, an impossible situation, and yet answered prayer. An impossible situation, and yet answered prayer. So look at verse six now, this text, this text is so good. All right, now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two, look at the details of the Bible, okay? Bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter in the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands and the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so and he said to him, wrap your cloak. Look Look how practical this is, I love it. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And Peter went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and second guard, They came to the iron gate leading into the city and it opened for them on its own accord. Awesome, right? And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure. Look at all that Peter has seen, all that he's experienced already in the building of the early church. He's still, there's a part of him that's like, is this really happening? And like, did he really believe what was going on? He says, now I'm sure that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Okay, so let's start with this glorious text. Let's start with this impossible situation, okay? Peter is under maximum security. You have four squads of soldiers, so four times four, four different watches of soldiers throughout a 24 hour period. Two soldiers were chained to Peter while sleeping. Okay, that's not only awkward, right? (laughs) That's also an impossible escape. Don't you agree? It's impossible to escape from that. Then you have two more soldiers who are guarding the doors to the entrance of the cell. I mean, that's quite the security here. Now, Peter had already escaped once from prison. You have to think Herod heard about that happening right there in Jerusalem. He's like, no, no, not this time. You might've gotten away the somehow last time. There's no way. And he made it, set it upon himself to make sure that Peter would not escape again the foolishness of the ways of humanity when it really comes down to it, when you're trying to oppose God. Then I just love verse seven. I love verse seven. Look at verse seven. Give you a chance just to read it again. I love the power of God in verse seven. I love the supernatural in verse seven. I love the light that shines in that dark cell. The angel shows up and however that looks, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna play that DVD or digital form, whatever that is in heaven. I wanna see that, man. What did the light look like? It comes from the angel and it's shining in that dark place. That's an awesome, awesome thing. I love how the angel has to strike Peter. Do you see that? I'm not making that up. It's right there in the text. Look it, the angel shows up and has to strike Peter. Now time out a second. Wait a second, we we know from the text that that very day, Peter is about to lose his head for his faith in Jesus Christ. And he's sleeping like a baby. Like he is snoring apparently, or he is in deep sleep at the very least to the point the angel has to come and either kick him or strike him and say, hey, wake up. It's like the teenagers sleeping long into the hours of the morning, you come up and you shaking them to get the, wake up, wake up. Son, most of the time. Wake up! Wake up! Right? Wait, the angel, I, I love that that's there. Now, a few chapters from now, Paul is going to be in prison with Silas, and he's going to be singing. Who does that? Luke's two heroes of the early church are Peter and Paul. One sings in prison, the other sleeps like a baby on the night of his execution.
1: You're listening to Live in the Light with Robbie Simons. If you'd like to hear this message again or the rest of the messages from this series, you can find these resources and more on our website at liveinthelight.ca. Our mailing address in Canada is 500 Great Lakes Boulevard in Oakville, Ontario. Our postal code is L6L6X9. Our prayer is that people are impacted by Live in the Light. They would be renewed in mind, reinforced in faith, and resolved in will to live in Jesus Christ. I'm Craig Turnbull, and on behalf of Robbie Simons, we invite you to join us again next time on Live in the Life.